Good morning, Northbrook. Today's word will be 1 Peter, verses 17 through 21. We have Bibles available at the welcome table in the back. If you do not own a copy of God's word, please take one as our gift to you. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Northbrook, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, so um, I am pressing through the effects of NyQuil and DayQuil mixed together right now. Um, And good, just a a little cold, um, but doing fine. Um, I am curious, I just as Will was praying, I don't know why this came to mind, but it did. I was just wondering who all just enjoyed girding the loins of their mind over this last week. And uh, I'm not going to call them out, but I do know of at least one person that saw that how-to and practiced girding their loins genuinely, like in real life. Um, and so maybe there's more than one, but there was at least one. And so um, now everybody is wondering, and you'll just maybe never know, or you can just ask everybody until... Someone sheepishly walks away. Um, so if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to the podcast. Of course, you don't see the visual. So, you know, you just missed a moment if you were not here last week. But this week, we're continuing, obviously, in First Peter and just this uh, series where we're talking about living hope in fiery trials. And one of the trials that we all face, every one of us, uh, maybe you've heard this kind of language, maybe you used it a lot, uh, but is the, the trial of fearing men more than fearing God. That we fear the, we need the approval of men, maybe you could say it that way. Uh, We fear what people are gonna think of us, their impression of us, that that guides and leads our thoughts and our actions and what we, how we go about in the world more than uh, a fear, a holy fear of who God is and what he has called us to um, and what he says. And, And any one of us could get up here and give a long list of really stupid things that we've done because we were fearing men. Uh, I mean, the height of fearing men is just peer pressure. Um, and, you know, I think I remember even when I was a teenager, I think I've told my kids this, maybe. Um, you know, I, I would remember one time as I was at Six Flags or just random places, and I would just steal random things that I never needed and never used, but I was just trying to impress and just trying to fit in, just doing stupid things uh, to fit in because I was fearing uh, my, you know, in that situation, my peers' response and what they desired for me uh, as opposed to God. But it doesn't end when we grow up, does it? Uh, yeah, it just, just changes uh, the, the different ways we fear what, what people uh, might say. I think about all the hard conversations maybe we avoid uh, because we're fearing men rather than God, the thing about signing up to follow Jesus is you're signing up for a life of awkward conversations. Um, now, it's not the only kind you have, but following Jesus, I mean, just read the, Jesus. Like, uh, this, most of what he was doing was having awkward, hard conversations with people that were good for them, that uh, he, he was displaying love and hope for them. Um, and then if you want to be a pastor, you can just triple that. 
Like that's one of the things about being a pastor is you just, man, here we go. We're just in, in here. We got to have this conversation. And, and it's not in a, uh, a domineering, oppressive kind of way, but it's in, man, God has said something and there seems to be like some unawareness here that we just need to talk about. Um, and uh, when we fear men instead of God, we don't, we avoid those. Uh, for those of us in here that might be parents, I think of how often our parents, our parenting is more led out of fear of men. We want our kids to appear a certain way, so we appear a certain way before people. And sometimes that means we press too hard into their life, and sometimes that means we're, we're too soft. Just, but either way, we're, we're fearing men and not fearing God and just trying to be faithful to Him. Again, there's a long list. One, one more example, I think of just a comment like the work-life balance. And again, this can go either way. We can neglect our family because we're uh, desiring and fearing the responses of people at our work more than God. But also, sometimes we can neglect our work because we're exalting our family in this unhealthy way and fearing responses that may happen there. There's no cookie-cutter way we respond. We all have different responses. But the reality is, the motivation of our heart is what leads to either us laying our are, are having a proper holy awe of who God is and what he's done and trying to, as best we can, be faithful to that or know what this person thinks of us or what this person might think of us and that be what leads our decisions and guides us. And so that's kind of the, the big idea today is fear God rather than man. And Peter has just so much rich truth for us here if I can provide a weird metaphor, this is kind of how I thought about verses 17 through 20. It's kind of this law gospel sandwich. Um, and so if you think of an actual sandwich and you think of the law and the gospel, God's holy, righteous, perfect law, uh, and then the gospel that saves us from people that cannot fulfill that law, cannot keep that law. Um, and then this is the weird part. Uh, in a sandwich, if you, you know, squeeze down too hard and like some mustard squirts out of the sandwich, um, this is like part of that part of verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's kind of the mustard that's squirting out of the law gospel sandwich. It will make sense maybe uh, eventually. Um, but that's kind of what we have here as we're thinking about what it looks like to fear God instead of fearing man. So first let's focus on just two aspects of God's character that we see in verse 17. We'll get to, and if you call on him as father here in a minute, but li listen to this father. Here's two realities about who he is. He judges impartially and he judges each one's deeds. So these are two truths about who God is that are unchanging, that are eternal, that are forever, that he is impartial and that he will judge each one's deeds. And so for this, like God being impartial, I just want to read this scripture over you. There is just so much scripture that helps us feel the weight of how impartial God is. Listen, listen to all of this scripture. Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Second Chronicles, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Job, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they, all, for they are all the work of his hands. Acts, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality. Romans 2, for God simply, 
God shows no partiality. Romans 10, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Ephesians 6, masters do the same do masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. partiality. And then finally, this, kind of the, this whole idea leads me to uh, the doxology at the end of Romans 11. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. This is our God. Who shouldn't, him, God showing no partiality is a point that God wants to make significantly throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Which shows this is a point we're natural to not believe are natural to confess with our mouth, but not really believe in our heart. That God actually, that we, you know, that's why I quoted Romans 11. Like we kind of think we've given God something and we earn something in return. We, we, we naturally tend towards that direction and God continually corrects us and say, no, with me, there's no, there's, you've not given me anything. I see it all. There's no power you have. There's no influence you have. There's no amount of wealth you can store up. There's nothing you can do that will make me look upon you in some favorable light that is different than anybody else in all the world. Again, there is no partiality with our God. He judges out of his perfect, eternal wisdom and justice and holiness. That that is how God views humanity. And then, as, as he views humanity, that second part, he judges according to each one's deeds. Again, so as we think about how we've acted before this God, how we've responded to this God, every deed that we have ever, ever done or ever will do, God judges in this perfect kind of way, in a way that, that nothing else you've done kind of makes up for it in some kind of way, that he judges each one's deeds. And I think what we do here, especially when we're not believing the gospel, we just kind of tend to uh, look at our deeds in this just general way. Uh, we, we may be kind of more buy into the idea of karma than the idea of uh, God's law and God's reality and uh, our, our sinfulness against uh, this God. And we just think of our deeds generally like, okay, you know, it's been decent, you know, if I could just stack them all up. But if we were to just a moment to focus on the worst deeds we've done. Isn't that always encouraging to do? Um, but if we were, we, they're, they're real, aren't they? They're decisions we've made. They're, 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 maybe we're even justifying them right, right now, like, oh, just the circumstances. But if we just focus on uh, the worst deeds, the things that bring most guilt and most shame to our hearts, or, or maybe even the worst deeds that we have going on right now, like the things we struggle with the most right now. It's not just this historical, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Although again, the answer to that question is a real thing you have done that will be judged by God. Uh, But there's also the the right now of it. What are the worst things we're involved in right now that we justify and uh, try to, you know, sweep under the rug? Maybe you're really kind, but you're neglecting a clear God-given responsibility. Maybe you're very organized, but you run over and bully people with your words. 
what we do is we like to focus on that first and kind of excuse the latter. Like I wouldn't do that last part if things were just different, if people, you know, were organized like me, if people were kind like me, or oh, that'll take care of itself. I don't need to really worry about, you know, that reality that God has called me to, whatever it might be. Again, we don't like to think about these things, but this verse says that God is thinking of them. He's not forgotten them. He knows them. There's not one deed that slipped past his sight. And he judges according to what is really happening, not our skewed perception. Your perception is not God's perception. My perception is not God's perception. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's our desire. That's what we should pray. God, help me see my deeds like you see them. Uh, but, but often, obviously, we're far from it. Um, but in, in this judgment by God the Father... Our our deeds aren't the only ones that matter. Listen to the thief on the cross from Luke 23. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Talks about the deeds that they've really done and the justice being poured out on them. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we see that our deeds aren't the only ones that matter. That before God, we will give an account for our deeds. And that account will be on our own before a holy God who shows no partiality. Or we will be before God hidden in Jesus Christ. Hidden in the reality of his deeds done uh, on our behalf. And because the Father is impartial and judges our deeds. This is kind of uh, Peter's argument here as we see that last part of Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay, so we've seen God's character. We've seen that he's impartial. We see that he's going to judge. And now Peter is saying there's this call to action here, that we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. And so we're going to kind of ask two questions about this, using this verse to answer them. But what does Peter mean, and how do we do it? So what does Peter mean when he says conduct yourself uh, with fear throughout the time of your exile, and then how do we do it? First, I want to say there are actually several non-Christian reasons to obey this verse. That if we're just thinking of that phrase, conduct yourself uh, in fear in this time of this exile, like we're all kind of doing that to some degree or another. So just because we're trying to make good decisions, we need to be careful that that's not in and of itself a Christian reality or a Christian thing to do. There are lots of non-Christian reasons to try to make the best decisions uh, about life and do the best we can uh, in this life. Uh, A few quotes I, I got Uh, that kind of explains some of these philosophies. Albert Camus, he's the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1957. Y'all already knew that, but um, he said, I would rather live my life, sorry, I would rather live my life as if there is a God and die to find out there isn't than as if there isn't and die to find out that there is. So again, on the surface may sound okay, but that's a very non-Christian statement. Um, Marcus Aurelius Famous quote of him, live a good life. 
If there are gods and they are just, then you will not care how devout, they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. If there are gods but unjust, then you should not want to worship them. If there are no gods, then you will be gone, but will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved ones. I remember watching this interview with Christopher Reeve, which it's Reeve, not Reeves, in case you're curious. Uh, Christopher Reeve, the old Superman guy. Um, and I just realized the age of so many people in the room. You're like, I have no idea who Christopher Reeve is. But he said this, and I remember this even as a little kid seeing this. He said, even though I don't personally believe in the Lord, I try to behave as though he was watching. Again, an idea of conducting yourselves with fear during this, this life, but a very non-Christian answer to those questions. Verse 17 really could be signed off by any religion that seeks to obey God out of a reverence for God. Uh, but there are two main things from this context, from this surrounding passage, that make this statement uniquely Christian. Look back again at, at the beginning of verse 17. If you call on him as father. So if you call on God as father, that is a uniquely Christian idea. That, that we are so um, related in Christ to the father that he is our father, that we get to call upon him as father. Again, one of these simple Christian truths that can get lost on our hearts and minds, uh, but should be the very kind of life blood that pulses through our veins. Uh, I, I remember uh, J.R. Packer, he has something about, uh, a question about, you know, how do you know uh, about someone's Christian life? He's like, what do they think about the fact that they get to call upon God as father? Like that will tell you so much about someone's Christian life. Um, and this is, a, this is a gift. This is a gift that came at a great cost, that, that we get to call upon God as Father. And so again, that's a, a difference between uh, us saying this as Christians and, and other people that would say this. And, and the reality is our intimacy with God, it grows in unison with our awe and respect of Him. So I think a lot of us think about fearing God and they're like, what does that mean? How do I, how do, I do that? But, but people, we, surely you've been around someone that's just really wise and you're a little uncomfortable around them because they're afraid you're, they're just going to see something you, you've never seen before and you're like, man, what are they going to call me out on in a humble, kind way, but it's just going to take me. I remember even uh, Matt Chandler, pastor at the village, for those of y'all that don't know him, I remember hearing him one time talk about being around Tim Keller. And he was like, I just try to avoid conversation just because I'm not sure. He's just so brilliant. I'm not sure what he's going to say. Um, and it's just that kind of idea. But as we, we grow in our awe and uh, respect of God, we also get to grow in intimacy with him. Um, the one that judges all of our deeds perfectly is our dad. And he isn't just our dad. He's like the perfect loving dad. He's not like me, fallen and so much of my perception, getting it wrong so many different times, trying my best, wanting to do right by my kids, but just not being able to see what I don't see. He sees everything. And he's the one that judges perfectly. And we get to uh, cling to him and um, call out to him. If you call on him as father. That's a question and an exhortation that, that we get to call on him as father father. Again, if we're thinking about parenting, this is one of the reasons as parents we should point our kids to this father because we are going to get it wrong. 
but he never does. And we don't just have a perfect father. Again, that's one of the things that makes us Christian, but we have a perfect big brother. Um, Look at verses 18 through 21. This is really kind of the response to God's impartial judgment of our deeds. And only in by believing in these truths that we see here will we actually be able to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. So even if you look at verse 18, it starts with the word knowing that. So there's no conducting ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exiles without knowing what Peter is about to say here. Like we can't separate them. They're, they're, they, they, are, uh, they, were, they are connected together and inseparable. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So we are to conduct ourselves in this way because we know that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Um, the, the reality is, if we just think not necessarily forefathers way back when, but if you just think about our, your parents, your parents might have been great, your parents might have been abusive. We all have the, those extremes that we go through, but all of us have been, been born into, no matter how good they were, an inheritance of this feudal way of sin, of a worthless way of trying to find redemption. None of us have been born to perfect, sinless parents. Uh, just like if we have kids, they will not be born to perfect, sinless parents. This is the reality that we are all in. What we inherit from our ancestors uh, is, is incredible versus what we inherit in Jesus. Just look back up in First Peter verse 3. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Look at the difference in inheritance, inheritances. Here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we're born into this feudal, another way to translate that word is worthless inheritance, but in Jesus we get this undefiled imperishable, eternal inheritance. Like we're born into this way of thinking about redemption that is a chasing after the wind. We're born into this way of whether it's uh, some version of Christianity absent of the gospel, whether it's some other religion, whether it's a non-religion at all, we're born into just thinking we can be able to figure this thing out on our own and be redeemed and get back to God or, or do right. And all of it, what Peter's saying is worthless. It's a, it's, a cha- it's, a, it's a boxing or shadow. It's a ton of activity without actually one inch of, a, of progress. That, that is what all of us are born into and the opposite of what we get in Christ. Um, and then Peter gives an example of kind of this futile, worthless ways as you go on in the next part of the verse. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Isn't it so interesting that he highlights material gain has no purpose in your redemption? Isn't it telling that he's calling out? He could have said lots of things. He's saying, hey, we get this inheritance. We're redeemed in Christ. We need to know this Christ. He's going to go on to talk about how Christ has ransomed us. But he's going to say, hey, there's one way this doesn't happen. And there's actually lots of ways this doesn't happen. But Peter's going to take the time to call out one way this doesn't happen. There's no amount of material gain that is going to ransom you back to God. And it says silver and gold. I just looked up, and if Google's right, uh, all the gold in the world is worth about 
what was it, $12 trillion. And so if you were to have all the gold in the world, it is not sufficient to pay for one of our sins. It's not sufficient to pay for one sin by one person. All the gold in the world and everything else on top of that. We are still left in our sin. There's no way we are going to be saved by perishable things such as gold or silver. Um, And here's the deal. We might be doubting this. I think a common response to this is, why is my sin that big of a deal? Why does God take it so seriously? I'm not really hurting anyone. Again, as we think about our sin and we think about our our inclination, we're we're born into that futile way of redemption. Uh, We're born into that futile way of thinking. We're born into that kind of minimizing the deeds that God is going to judge. And so we ask those kind of questions. And here's the, we have to come to this kind of conclusion. Who is a, a better source of wisdom about our sin? Have we made ourselves that source of wisdom or is God the source of wisdom? That's what becoming a Christian is. It's saying, God, you know, you, you see everything. And, and actually being humbled by what God sees. Not just like acquiescing to what he believes, but believing what he believes. And seeing our sin uh, as in uh, this great offense to this holy, righteous God. I think Jesus gets to this in these questions he asks in Mark 8. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what, can a man gain, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Again, we could own all the gold in the world. And in the end, it would, would it be worth it if you lost your very soul? Obviously not. But here is the only sufficient payment. Verse 19, that we have been ransomed, not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that without lamb, like, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. What no money or power could ever do, Christ was willing and able to do on our behalf. Again, don't spend your time gaining the world. Spend your time seeking the spotless lamb. He was perfect in eternity and creation. He was the perfect promise throughout the Old Testament. He was perfect as he entered into Mary's womb. And he was perfect in every moment of this earthly life. And he was perfect in his death and resurrection so that he could be the perfect ransom that our soul needs. He's not just perfect, but he's internal. He's foreknown before the foundation of the world. Father and Son have eternally foreknown each other. There was never a time that they didn't coexist And also the fullness of redemption that would be secured through Christ has always been known to God. It wasn't a plan he conjured up. He's known it from the beginning of time. And look at the rest of verse 20. Uh, This eternal triune knowledge showed up. Why? It was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Think of the power of that you in that verse. Like for the, it could have been, again, could have been for the sake of so many different things. But God did all of this for the sake of you. Praise God that he would think of us in this way, that he would save us in this way. 
that it's not just this uh, God gets all the glory from all of our redemption, but we should never miss the fact that he does it for us. I think sometimes we, we, we remove God's holiness and his glory from his actions of redemption for his people, and we should never do that. I hear people say some, sometimes, it's like, man, even if God didn't save, he, you know, I would still give him all the praise in the world. Uh, and, and I kind of get the truth behind that, but we, can never, we shouldn't do that. God did save. God did send Jesus. We should never separate God's holiness and glory and otherness from the reality that he saves. And it's for the sake of you. Like he wants us to feel that. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see that his holiness and glory and love terminates on our redemption. And that's a glorious thing that we can praise him for. Um, God has crafted redemption in a perfectly wise way to show off his abundant glory and lead to our most joy for now and forevermore. And then verse 21 describes this beautiful theological truth that who through him are believers in God. So obviously it's clear that it's only through Jesus that any of us can be believers in God. This actually just shows what we are saved to. Peter talks about things we're saved from, or in verse 14, we see that we're saved from former ignorance. We just talked about how we're saved from the feudal ways inherited from our fathers, but we have been saved to Jesus. We are united with him. I remember uh, years ago, I heard Sinclair Ferguson, he was on a panel and he was discussing one of the gaps in like this, the, this kind of theological movement uh, that he was, you know, roughly associated with. And he was, like, he was just asked the question, what, what do you feel like they might be missing? And his reply was, well, I'm not sure, but I think one of the things they might be missing is union with Christ. That, that we can be theological and say all the right things, but that if we miss the rich, beautiful, biblical reality that we have been united to Christ, then we're going to have this kind of deformed faith. We're going to think about all the things we shouldn't do, and, you know, we shouldn't gossip. We shouldn't slander. We shouldn't be sinfully angry. We shouldn't be lustful. Those are good things that we should turn from that will wreak havoc in our life, but we have to be sa- realize that we're saved not just from those things and don't just turn from those things, but we turn to this glorious, beautiful reality that now we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that we're saved through Jesus, that we died with him, that we raised with him, that we're hidden with him right now uh, in glory, that this is, this theological truth is mysterious and beautiful and marvelous and something we should uh, embrace and consider in the midst of uh, our Christian life. Again, it sounds like some, some, so much of a simple biblical truth, we are in Christ and Christ is in us, but we often miss uh, the richness of it. Um, in his book, Union with Christ, uh, William Rankin, he, he defines union in that straightforward way that you're in Christ and Christ is in you, but he elaborates in this way. He says, the Bible says that those who belong to Christ are so intertwined with his life that when he died, we died with him. For you have died, Paul wrote to his very living audience, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Everything that was supposed to hit us, even the judgment of God for our sins, hit Jesus. He blazed a path against hostile forces, seen and unseen. He made a way to glory. One man made a way for all to live. We are hidden in Christ. 
And so now we can go on as we see the rest of the verse, who raised him from the dead. So now his resurrection is our resurrection and gave him glory that God gave Jesus glory. So Jesus was raised in glory and it is this glory because we're unified with him that we look forward to seeing at the, as we see the risen Jesus, we look forward to this glory. If we stand outside of this, outside of Christ, this glory is terrifying. But now that we are united with Christ, this glory is not terrifying. It's, it's glorious. It's something now that we, we worship him for. And we're invited into that even now. And then so that finally, your faith and hope are in God. All this leads Peter and us to the conclusion that there is nowhere else to put our faith and hope but in this God. And so in conclusion, we'll kind of just ask the question, okay, what does it look like? How do we conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile? The reality is our understanding of how much wiser God is, how worthy he is of everything, how humble we truly are before him should create this kind of holy fear. And this is a concept I think we struggle with, but remember it's infused with the grace and redemption through Christ. Grace produces even more holy fear, not less. Like as we think about we have a holy fear of God before him outside of Christ, and then as we're in Christ, we actually have more of a holy fear for him, not less. It's not like we're just good friends with him now. No, we see, we see the reality of who he is. We see how, uh, how awesome it is that he would save such as us. And so this holy fear can actually continue to grow throughout our life as intimacy with Jesus continues to grow too. They're, they're not opposed to each other. We shouldn't look at them that way. Um, and so here, here are just some ways we, we can conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. I think of biblical examples like we flee sin, like Joseph did. He, he feared God rather than man when he ran out from Potiphar's house uh, as Potiphar's wife held his cloak. Ran out naked because he feared God more than men. And that is the way that we should flee sin. We, we flee sin uh, when we fear God more than men. Uh, another way is we seek God like David did. Like when we see in every aspect of David's life, in great suffering, in great sin, in great celebration, in great highs and lows, what do we constantly see David doing? Seeking God through word and prayer because he feared God more than fearing man. That's what we are called to do. And I think, you know, one of the things that would be helpful to do is when we're in a community of God fears, because even as we think about fearing God more than fearing man, it would actually be awesome if we're around people who actually want that same thing for us. So like their expectations of us are to follow God so that those things aren't opposed. Like when we go and we're in different relationships, what someone wants for us often is opposed to what God wants for us. And so this is why we need to be in a church. This is why we join a church. This is why we're in community so we can actually be with brothers and sisters who actually want us to fear God more than fear man. And it's a really important to have those relationships. Again, even just thinking about high school, what, what was so hard for so many of us in high school is we didn't have that. Uh, now, there's lots of hard things about high school, but one of them is we were alone and, and struggling through. Okay, I'm just going to speak by, obviously, I'm talking about myself here. Um, that was one of the things, just being alone and not having a camaraderie of brothers and sisters who, who are running after and desiring the same thing and being able to encourage one another as we encountered many people who weren't doing that. And so we have that here and we need to uh, press into that. Um, and then that we need to take risk. 
There's a, I can't remember if I've used this example before, but in Intentional Father by John Tyson, uh, one of the things he did with his son is he had his son kind of meet with a lot of other friends of his and kind of just have intentional moments. So it's kind of this idea of this coming into um, rites of passage kind of thing. And uh, one of the conversations uh, John Tyson's son had with a friend, the friend told him like, hey man, you have an incredible safety net. Um, and there's a lot that went into that. Like he was just well-connected, his dad's a pastor, he lives in America. He's, there's lots of reasons he had a great safety net. And he's like, so you can take great risk. Um, you, you should be willing to take great risk because you have a great safety net to catch you. N- now that statement is true of every Christian. Like we have the greatest safety net. We have the Father who owns the world and everything in it. Um, and so we should be willing to take great risk. And that's what we do when we conduct ourselves with fear through this time of exile. Is not, we're not tiptoeing around things. We're not always sure if we have it right or wrong. But in Jesus' name, we take great risk and trust that God will help us uh, along the way. Not foolish, but man, look at the scriptures. It's full of great risk. Um, it's maybe full of risk that we would say, man, I'm not sure that's so wise. You maybe should pray that, about that a little bit more. Um, but we have a father who is gracious and loving and kind and owns everything so we can take great risks. Just think about your life right now. What risk, again, maybe it's even like that awkward conversation thing. Maybe it's a, a relationship that you know God is calling you to press into, a conversation he's calling you to have, and you can take that risk uh, because he loves you. Maybe it is the more kind of typical kind of risk of selling everything you have and moving to another part of the world where people speak a different language and and risking everything for the sake of Christ in that way. God calls us all to different things and to take risk in different ways, but we get to take risk. Uh, And that's one aspect of living out uh, this life. I think about recently I've been trying to do more of this just with the idea of evangelism. Um, and a couple of things, like one, I have a uh, buddy, he's a pastor at another local church, and he's just like, uh, he's got the gift of evangelism, but he also is like one of those guys that like, goes to the mall and evangelizes. And I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. I'm just, but I'm like, I've just never done evangelism well since I've been a pastor. That sounds weird, but it's true. Um, like when I worked at, uh, in a secular job, it was actually pretty easy and pretty common and pretty, but since working at a church, it's been much harder for me to practice evangelism. Um, and so I was like, man, I'm just going to go with this guy and see what happens. Um, and we did. And we went to the mall and shared the gospel. And it was awkward and it was uncomfortable. And it was kind of glorious in some different ways. And I'm not even encouraging you to do that. But I'm just saying, man, I just need to do something. I need to shake this area of my life up. And this is a guy that's gifted in this way. So I'm going to go with him in this way and see what the Lord does. Uh, and, and we did have an encouraging time and encouraging conversations with some people before security kicked us out of the mall. Um, but no worries. It was fine. Uh, and then I, I think about things like, and I'm just sharing honestly here. So uh, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a prayer walk in this neighborhood, and we're going to actually pass out little cards to, to show um, the uh, uh, to invite people to the fall fest we have coming up. And and even that, when I've seen churches do that in the past, I've had kind of a hesitation. Like, man, are we just trying? What are we doing here? Are we just trying to get more people to the church? Are we trying to? But here's here's the reality: is that God has people in this neighborhood. God has people he's saving. There's people that don't know him. There's people that in this neighborhood that have never really heard of him. Uh, there's people in this neighborhood that had no idea what the gospel means. 
And so when we go hand out these cards and hope that they come to a fall fest and hope that they get to meet people that are part of the church, hope that they get to have conversations, it's with that hope. It's with that desire. We don't, we, we, your elders really don't care how, church, how big this church gets, big or small. We're not trying to get really big. We're not trying to stay really small. We're not trying to do either of those things. We're trying to be faithful to Jesus. Um, and so I just I, I confess when I see those kind of things, sometimes I have that skeptical heart, but then I realize, man, I can take this risk. You know, God can do whatever he wants to do. Maybe we have some awkward encounters with people. Maybe people are upset. Maybe I miss a no soliciting sign and I uh, hand out this flyer to someone and they're real ticked off about it. Uh, Obviously, I've had that actual fear. There you go. Um, uh, Our our neighborhood, well, any neighborhood Facebook page is just the worst. And so our neighborhood Facebook page gives you fear about things. Uh, But so does yours. It's it's the world we live in. and so I say that, that there's just risk we can take. What risk is God calling you to? Uh, that you can trust in him. Um, and then lastly, just to state it again, we're called to fear God, not man. Uh, I'm going to uh, kind of end uh, with this long passage uh, that we'll close with. We know that God is the perfect judge We know that none of us can stand against his judgment. And we know that Jesus was willing to absorb God's judgment on our behalf so that now we stand even more in awe of him. We long all the more to be with him and we desire to be faithful to him during this short little time that we have in this exile, as Peter calls it, as we're on our journey home. And then just as we think about fearing God, not man, uh, Isaiah 2 is just a passage that kind of came to mind. And so just prayerfully hear this word. Let it, let it invigorate your awe and um, just your posture towards this righteous, holy God. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 12. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter into caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. And that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the cleft of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And all of that infuses this last verse. Stop regarding men in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Let me pray for us. Father, it feels... Um, almost not right that we could actually look forward to this day where you bring the proud low. And yet it it invigorates and um, invokes in us great thankfulness for all that Jesus has done for us.
that we are the proud that have been brought low, that we are the proud that are continually being brought low, and that this is good news for us because of Jesus and only because of him. Not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done on our behalf is why we can look forward to this day. Why we can praise you and say, yes, this is right. You are the only one worthy of all glory and honor and praise, and we are not. And so, Spirit, would you do this work in us? Would you help us as a church conduct ourselves with fear during this time of exile for your glory and your glory alone? Would the reality of who you are, that you're impartial, that you judge all of our deeds, and yet we get to call on you as Father because of all that Jesus has done? Would we never separate those realities from each other, but would we embrace them and would they lead our hearts to worship? To worship you above all to take risk for the glory of your name, um, to flee from sin, to cling to you in the highs and lows of life. Spirit, we just need your help. And so would you do this work in us? In Jesus' name, amen.